This is Miss Deaver's secretarial school graduate from 1959, who is now telling the boss to give her all the money in his pocket. Our little Peggy, all grown up. to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. You have to let me announce you. Go ahead. Welcome to They Coined It. I'm Roberta Lip. I'm Dan Jasper. And we cover Mad Men episode by episode. And you can support us at patreon.com slash theycoinditpod. Beyond just listening to us and interacting with us, which you can also do, Instagram, Twitter, at TCI Mad Men Pod. All right. So listeners, I hope it doesn't sound any different this week. Roberta and I each have uh, stocking ski masks over our face while we do the pod this week in honor of mystery date and stands stands, <laughs> stands on the nose look at the beginning of the episode. L- literally on the nose. Get it? Oof. Oof. Well, look, this episode is – I'll just get into it now. It's, it's sort of all – it's like a mood board. Mm. It's like the entire episode's a mood board. Things happen, there's plot, things advance, but it's not like it's not like a Mad Men episode that has like something something to say in and of itself. It has something to say about the larger world and 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 that's worthy, but it's it's a very different episode from that standpoint of we'll get into the motif, but it's all motif just about. It's all right? motif. It's yeah. all uh it's fascinating. I mean, the only really plot thing that is significant, right, is is Joan and Greg, is is Joan's decision. Everything else is uh, is is stuff that happens, but it's incidental, and it's just right. how it's all treated. We don't need that much screen time with Sally and Pauline. <laughs> that's not that's not a thing Mad Men needs to have happen. That was why. <laughs> That was wild. All right. Set us up, Dan. So Mystery Date was written by Victor Levin and Matthew Weiner. By the way, I think Matthew Weiner has written or co-written every single episode so far this season and, spoiler, a bunch more. Um, I wonder if that's a new contract thing at the time. You know, could have been. I I remember him saying, and we've talked about, that if he's a co-writer, it usually means that he felt he needed needed to strengthen up the script a little bit that week. And so maybe it's a part of that. Who knows? I think the last time I saw, not the last time, because the last time I saw him was with you after the finale at the library, at the, at the public library, the New York public library. But one of the last time in the, in the final part, final part of the final season, he said, every script goes through him. Like he is but he, the but last. He doesn't get a, but he right. doesn't get a co-write That's credit. What, Unless he's put some substantial rework into it. That's what I'm saying. But but yes, but that every script, he would go through it and make sure it was the 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 madman voice, the, his voice. Truly, truly. Um, I, but but I guess I'm saying where he's a where he's a co-write credit, um, perhaps more more of his his time and effort probably went into those. I'm I'm guessing. Yeah. No. I, yeah. Yeah. And Victor Levin is a name we we don't know. He's done a lot of other stuff. I, I didn't I didn't have a bunch of names that jumped out at me of projects that, that you might know him from. But I did Google to see if he's the son of Ira Levin, because this this episode had such a, a horror genre feel 
that I thought maybe it was in this guy's blood. But no. I mean, it might be in his blood, but not because of Ira Levin. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Landing the plane at, directed by Matt, Sh- Matt Shackman. Now, this guy. So here's the thing. I, when I see new names, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check them out, right? Because, you know, you've got your Jennifer Getzingers. You got your, your Jacques Matans. And you got your home team. And then, you know. So Matt Shackman, one thing I thought was interesting was that for years and years and years and years, he mostly did one-offs and two-offs, just like we discussed with with Jennifer Getzinger. You know, he's kind of made a career of that, but then seems to be one of the creators of, because he was definitely on every, just about every episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and also WandaVision. So cool. he's got some stuff going on. Anyway, carry on, Dan. Original air date was April 8th, 2012, and it takes place over July 15th and 16th, 1966. So for a motif-heavy show... There is a lot to say about it, so I'll sort of take a deep breath, and here we go. So the summary is what would become to be known as the Speck Murders – they didn't have his name at this time – is the backdrop for a lot of the action of this episode. Greg comes home from duty, and and it's revealed that Uh, he has re-enlisted. You said duty. I said duty. Right. We're going to Beavis and Butthead this whole thing now. Um He's re-enlisted for another year of service, which prompts Joan to give him the heave-ho. Ginsburg and Rizzo have developed a pitch for Butler Shoes, which Ginsburg immediately undercuts in front of the client. That's an interesting scene. Peggy has an awkward experience with Dawn while letting her sleep over, and Dawn is sick and has a fever dreams about an old flame. There are a lot of scenes in this episode that are treated from the director's standpoint as horror. A perfect example is Peggy in the office late at night. If you, you know, if you watch how that's handled when she hears what turns out to be Dawn, it's very spooky. It's very yeah. close up of the hand on the door and dark and, you know, all of that. That's throughout the episode. So you've got this backdrop, as you said, uh, you know, of this horrible serial murder or not serial mass murder. You've got many moments that feel like horror that aren't horror. You've got the laughter around, you know, you've got the scene with the photographs. We're going to touch on all this. I just want to give this overview. When they're all looking at the photographs and that's a bright, colorful scene and people are laughing, which is about the horror. So that's like the juxtaposition. And then you've got things like Dawn confronting racism in her face as, which is also horror, which is not treated as horror. So I, I mm. that that was what I like woven through. It's like what's horror and what's not, and what what scares us and what should scare us and what doesn't scare us. Right. I put I put it in, in under the same umbrella as the opening scene of the season, the uh, the protest outside of of the ad agency, a YNR, I think, and it's the outside world coming in. It's it's the whole it's what's going on out there, breaking the bubble of of the firm and these people's lives and what you think is your is your sense of security, and uh, it's all intruding and it's kind of coming in in different ways at different velocities and different um, uh, uh, unexpected types of, of 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 ways, and I think that's to me the the line I draw so far this season. Is this is a big part of that, and that's why the motif I think is sort of a valid 
diversion, a valid sort of side street to go down, which is kind of how I consider this episode. Cause, you know, outside of, of the Joan and Greg bit, there's not a lot of Mad Men character action, you know, that's consequential that takes place other than that. And that's another great example. I mean, nothing about Joan and Greg is treated like horror in the way that, you know, that I was describing in terms of genre. It's all just regular family stuff. But who, you know, where's the real threat coming from? You know, over and over again, I would say in this episode, we're going to be able to point to the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> right. Well, well, that's Greg, too, right? It's, no, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. The, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the dad is the, the absent party here. And, and a monster. And, and a monster. And a monster, for sure, a monster. You know, part of this motif thing and what I saw, and I, I thought it was a, a clever little piece of it, the way that they wove through wove it throughout the the episode was every there's a lot of beds in this episode under the bed, lying on the bed. Yeah. Th- that final shot is of everyone on top of the bed, but we see Sally under the under the sofa with Pauline. Um, Don is stuffing dead corpses under the bed. The <laughs> nurses are hiding under the bed. It's right, all, that's right. A lot of beds. There's also a very long night. I mean, Dawn and Peggy, you don't see any beds, but that's that's a long sleepover. They stay up late. Joan, Joan and Greg, you don't see the bed. They go and have that fight, and then she comes out of the bedroom having had a terrible night's sleep. Everybody had a long-ass night. Certainly Dawn did. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And I thought, you know, I, I like that better this time. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit, but I, I – I had a better experience watching that this time than I remember. The first time I just remember, oh, this is just interminable and I wasn't getting much out of it. But this time I was kind of like, oh, I've had nights like that where you just like you you keep having this recurring dream or a recurring thought and you think your reality is completely altered over the course of the night. And Megan's like, no, I I was here. I was right there next to you the whole time. (laughs) You're like, oh, oh, really? I mean, I I (laughs) – I have such bad insomnia as a regular thing. My nights are very, very long and not in any kind of a good way. <laughs> like I'm up 30 times, you know, usually not out of bed, but just I'm always going through trying to get back to sleep um, sure. and murdering my past mistresses, frankly. <laughs> well, look, for, for what it's worth with Don, this was not insomnia. Right. You know, this was this was a, a pure fever dream. I mean, I think in a literal sense. Yeah. A fever dream. So. Well done, I think, uh, this time around. So let's start with Don and Megan. Right, right. So in, I think it's the opening scene, the very opening scene. Don and Megan are in this. I like how they did it. It was actually kind of clever. Don's coughing. Megan's like, all right, I'll be on this side of the elevator. It was very clever. Yeah. And that's what allowed Andrea, 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 Andrea and Andrea to come in. To pounce. And and why well, not think that they were together yeah. to not have a clue? Because she's way over there. That that stranger in the corner, that's my wife. <laughs> no, no, it was totally, <laughs> exactly. it was a great little setup. It really was. It was a very legitimate way for Andrea to not assume or, or um, if they were standing right next to each other and Andrea barged in and started talking to Don like that, you go, geez, what a. What a bitch <laughs> to come in and do that. Um, but there were, yeah, there, there was a legitimate opening physically for her to come in and, and 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 not have to assume that. Andrea didn't do anything wrong. Correct. Until she kept coming into his house over and over and jumping on him. But we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. She now knows where the service elevator is. So, um, but yeah, this this sets off a little bit of a of a running thing. And I, 
I think it's a valid thing for them to have gotten to totally in the relationship and to show in the sh- to show in the series now that they're married that Megan's got to deal with something of to some extent to what extent she has to deal with Don's past, which is extensive. Yeah. So to highlight, like th- there were sort of three different moments, three different beats to it, and you know Megan is we, uh, the question you were asking last time, I believe. Uh, who's Meg? Who is Megan? Right. Um, we're starting to really get who is Megan and she's mm-hmm. she's tough as nails with him and she doesn't miss a beat. So in the elevator after Andrea leaves, Don says, look, Megan goes, no, you look <laughs> right. That was yeah. the, that was kind of the first like boom that I ca- that I caught. Now they're coming into the office. He says, I- I'm telling you, you're upset over nothing. She says, you're making it worse. Which is so true. Like, that is so true. Whoever wrote that line knows a thing about women. Yeah, I think, I think, Gins- I think Ginsburg wrote it. Um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> that guy knows women. <laughs> but right, then, right. Then she says, she says, you're making it worse. I'll get over it. And I thought with that, just that piece of it, she knows herself. And we've now seen how she gets over things when she's very, 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 very upset, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, she's not very, very, very upset, but she does know herself. Let me, I, I will get over this. I just, let me, let me be mad about it first, right? right? I can be embarrassed and still feel that you did nothing specifically wrong. That's right. In the moment. The third piece was in the break room. He says, I'm sorry about this morning. She says it couldn't be avoided. He said it was a long time ago and I was unhappy. She said, because you were married. <laughs> then there's the stuff about I was embarrassed. You shouldn't be embarrassed, blah, blah, blah. He says, I was divorced. She says, and now you're not. Again, not missing a beat. She's like, right. no, no, this is about me right now. <laughs> Please hold. This is about my concerns and they're valid. She says, and, and that kind of careless appetite. You can't blame that on Betty. I mean, that is that's, so that's a stake in the heart, fucking right? fair, right? And then yeah. finally, he says, "This is Dan. This is so good." He goes, "Can't you let it go?" She says, "You brought it up." He says, "No, I didn't." She said, "You did," <laughs> and I'm like, "He did." Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. I've been in those. <laughs> um, but then, but when what she ultimately says is, "You feel guilty." Which makes it worse than I thought. That was the final. Can we, that that's was kind the, of that's the line I was thinking of about yeah. about knowing women. That actually. was the you're making it worse part due. Right. Um, how's my French? Right. So that was just to me. That was all fascinating about who she is in this relationship and what she's dealing with and how she deals with it. And I think the heart of it for Megan, if I'm if I'm inferring correctly, is the you were married and now you're married to me. In other words, now I'm the 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 recipient of this. <laughs> I'm taking the brunt of your careless appetite, or I will be. Or people are going to think. If I'm not already. Yeah. Yes. Or people are going to think. People are going to assume. All of that. All of that's there. Yep. And it's it's all fair. It's all realistic. It all, I think, in the in the context of the show and their relationship needs to be explored like this. And it's really, really done wonderfully, I, I thought. All of which I didn't catch in 2012. <laughs> There's one thing I did just kind of it takes it out of this moment. But but Andrea, <laughs> Andrea was a, a freelance writer 
at Sterling Cooper. We certainly mm. never saw her. We certainly never saw anybody like her. And later, much later in the episode, Peggy says, I was the only one like me. I like I, I don't think it's I don't I don't think Matt makes mistakes by putting those two conflicting things there. So either Don was actually lying about how he knew her or she was before Peggy's time, all of that. You know, Peggy I took it as that, yeah. It's just not a coincidence that both of those things would be in the same episode. Just that they could have made her a freelance something else. Or seven years ago, they could have said, yeah. I, I, I'm always keen. <laughs> I always have my ear out for when someone references someone else that Don has been with, either in a first person or a second. Remember, um, Bobby Barrett talks about someone from Random House. Right. That he was with, <laughs> you know, when he's got her tied up or whatever. And that's the I told you to stop talking episode. So this all <clears throat> this is all of a piece in terms of Don's reputation, that careless appetite, what people know about it, think about it, think but don't say, know for a fact or overall reputational that Don is carrying with him. And that now Megan feels that she now has one handle on that briefcase. Hello. How'd it go? Good. What are you up to? I'm keeping your chair warm. So I'll swing by and get you in an hour. Well, why don't you just go home? Climb into bed. Really? Yes. I only need another couple of hours. Behind all this, Don is really sick. And it's, it's, we've never seen anything like it. You know, generally, a show doesn't show a person be sick. People get colds all the time and come to work sniffling. And we don't see much of that. It's just not, it's not focused on. Right. But obviously this is, you know, a big piece of the of the plot. But it is first first you're just taking in. Wow. Look at Don sick. We've never seen anything like that. What I originally thought was that uh, this was. To the viewer meant to be a link to Betty's story mm. last week in tea leaves. Cancer coughing like like we're sitting here, you know, five plus seasons in waiting for someone to get lung cancer. I mean, that's, there, there, there is that undercurrent of the entire series because you can't have this many characters who smoke in the early 60s who've smoked presumably, you know, since their teens that uh, no one's going to catch the big C in, in their lungs. I mean, I didn't get that because he was sniffling too, but, but yep. it, you know, yeah. He stamps out a cigarette. She says, don't smoke. Like, it was just all those things that are. Oh, no, he's smoking. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so that's one thing I took of his, of his sickness as well. And so what, it, what this all kind of where this bubbles up is Don going home early, uh, after the butler shoe, which, which we'll talk about the meeting with those guys. I like that, that Megan sends him home. That was just, you know, I'm sending <laughs> you home. She says, I thought that was Megan great. in the driver's seat. Very sweet. And he does. And, and as sometimes happens, he has a literal fever dream. He is sick. He is hallucinating in his sleep. But obviously, this incident with Andrea in the elevator is stuck in his subconscious. And in his dream, she knocks on the door to the apartment. She lets herself in. She kind of forces her way in to seduce him over, over multiple episodes. Very important, though. It's not presented in any way like a dream. Again, you're going back to going back to juxtapositions. Yeah, it takes a few it takes a few rounds to realize that this is nonsensical. I don't remember specifically and I this I this I did not research what the what the viewers thought initially, mm -hmm. but I am pretty sure there was confusion and debate. And you know, yeah. at, e even even with even 
by the end was any of it real. Uh, I mean, other than the elevator scene was, did you know, did she come in the first time? Now, I'm a solid no. Right. I'm, a, right. I'm a hard no on that. And I think I think you are with I me. Think we're safe on that. Yeah. yeah. But I do think, you know, this goes back to what we talked about at the end of season one with Matt Zoller Seitz. You can kind of look at this show and have moments of, is this a dream? Is this not a dream? Everything right. you, can, you, you can just pass it off as everything's a dream. But this was meant to be confusing, as confusing as it was for Don. I definitely think it was it was intended to be confusing. But I also think that as compared to other times when we've been unsure about a dreamlike state, this is unambiguous in terms of the resolution. Now, again, maybe not in the moment. We didn't think that. But certainly it's clear now how 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 much it wasn't a dream. Excuse me. How much it wasn't reality. Yeah. Um, And thank God he's got, you know, four spare white carpets. (laughs) (laughs) He's got the carpets and a lot of space under that bed. You know, you can shove a lot of dead mistresses under there. Who knows? If you really need to. What company she. uh... So very importantly, what the dream was about, which is a very, very clear to me struggle with that sex addiction, that careless appetite. I mean, he's literally wrestling with it. <laughs> uh, yes, I think it's all of that. But what I loved about it, because that's that part, I think, is somewhat on the nose. Like it's sort of in your face, just, you know, it's her that shows up, not say another conquest from the past. It's her specifically. We know who she is. We know the conflict that it's created now with Megan. But I like this larger motif kind of bearing down, which was an intruder into your home, Hmm. shove it, you know, them going under the bed to be hidden. It's sort of like it was a great kind of expressionistic sense of, look, here's just what's out there. Here's the things that are on people's minds. And we don't hear Don talking about the murders in Chicago. Everyone else is talking about it, but we don't see Don. But he certainly knows the story. He certainly read the paper. He certainly knows what's going on. So, like, just the idea of that completely unspoken way that that has in my reading, my telling and my my looking at it, has seeped into his subconscious along with this Andrea business. It all kind of mixes together. And I think, it, you know, at the end of the day, what we're seeing as the viewer is this larger swirling pool of influences and subconscious that has Don obviously sick and, and, and with, the, with the hallucinations. But to me, I liked how the unrelated thing mixed in there as well. Yeah. I can't get away from the psychology of it. You know, there's a lot we don't know about Don yet that we are still to learn. We do know he has a past, a childhood with abuse in it, all kinds of abuses. And that intruder, he gets assaulted. I mean, she, you know, eventually yeah. he eventually he gives into it. That's the addiction part. Eventually he he is he is a yes, but there was so much assault and coercion to get to the yes. I don't even know if I'm right to say that it's a yes. I, I feel like I need rape culture supervisor here, but I don't have one. Well, look, he wasn't physically overwhelmed, right? He could have, you know, he en- he ended up physically overwhelming her while she was, you could say, assaulting him because she physically entered his space and 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 climbed on top him and, of him and, and you, cl- yeah, all of that. You you mean you've you've had. <laughs> You've had toddlers. When they get physically overwhelming with you, you are restraining yourself from winning right. that physical fight. If he was to, you know, he look what happened. Look how it turned out. 
So he he couldn't overpower her without risking what ended up happening. Uh, I guess I'm saying that he he wasn't um, he did give in. He could have not given in and he wasn't physically forced to have sex with her. I don't think that was was his was his option or non-option. I think he gave in because of his sickness in this case. Um, and obviously it's, it's weighing on his mind and he's got, he's got a lot to work out that he hasn't worked out. So yeah, I think he, he let himself be coerced as much as she was coercing. I think we're talking about different sicknesses. I mean, I'm not saying the fever didn't have anything to do with it. No, I I didn't mean the fever either. Okay. No, I meant his, his sex addiction. He gave in because he's a sex addict. So when presented with this, this supposed option or the supposed opportunity in his mind, uh, he did not resist it. He tried. He wanted to, but he ultimately did not. Anyway, then he kills her. Then he wakes up. Then <laughs> Megan's there. It's been Megan the whole time. That was great. That was fun. <sighs> Wild. It's a lot of space under that bed. Um, okay. So, so that happens. <laughs> <laughs> Grandma Paulina is still here, and I hate her. Stay out of her way. Your mother will be back Friday morning. It is Friday morning. We get a lot of time with Sally and her, well, I was going to say grandmother, but it's not her grandmother. She calls her grandmother Pauline. Grandma, either oh, grandma does. or, yes. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's, um, I, I had a, I had a step-grandmother. Okay. She was, she was, she was Grandma Evelyn. Wow. Okay. And what it didn't seem weird to you at all? You were quite young, right? So you grew up with that as the name? That's right. Okay. It didn't seem at all weird to me. Granny. Granny? Did I say Granny? Granny Evelyn. Uh, Evelyn? Jesus Christ. Can't help you there. I hope my sister doesn't listen to this one. I don't rem- I'm now not sure of her because there was also an Aunt Evie, an Aunt Evelyn. So that was that was also st- actually, <laughs> boom, there you go. We're done. She was a great aunt. On this week's Eminently Chewable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Roberta's family tree. <laughs> yeah. We'll get more into this, guys. This is what you came for. <laughs> no, this actually, this does, con- this answers, this continues to answer the question, though, because Aunt Evelyn was my stepfather's great aunt and my stepfather's aunt. She was my great aunt. She was a step great aunt. And she, so there you go. Yes, that's what you do. <laughs> And it might have been more awkward for Sally being a little bit older than I was, but I also had two older siblings and it was just not an issue. It was just what we called these people. My mom was big on family friends being aunt and uncle. We didn't have any of that nonsense. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I remember being like six or seven years old and I go, they're not my aunt and uncle. And I'm not going to call them aunt and uncle. I have an aunt and uncle. And they're who I call uncle this and aunt that. The the people who live across the street is not them. Well, I think I already... I think I said on, on on this very podcast that, and again, to say, you know, you, you mentioned how young I was. My parents were both remarried by the time I was three. And I never, 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 never didn't call my step-parents by their first name. I'm a little two-and-a-half-year-old calling her Nancy and him Harvey. Hmm. Done. So wow. it's with the extended older people that it, all of them, every other relative, it's not an issue. If they made you a tuna sandwich, would you have eaten it? That's really the question here. Listen, you don't know how much all I wanted every single day, every single day for like two years was a tuna sandwich. Me too. And I I still go through that. I might have that now, a tuna sandwich. Now. Total addiction. As a child, there was no relish in it. I did discover relish. Yeah. No, I like it. Uh, No, I like it. It's good. But I'm saying it's a little weird as a kid to be into that. 
you that that's realistic to not be into that. Like, I like it the way I like it. The whole thing was, let's get there. The whole thing was, I mean, that was a fun diversion, but the, the whole thing was really upsetting. Um, the moment when Pauline specifically says the thing about you will sit there and eat it. However, however, she Joan Crawford's her. Yeah. It was so mean. I mean, Pauline's tough to parse because she's all those things. She's all the things we saw. She believes in the abuse she received, but then she apologized for hurting Sally's arm. That was wrong to do. And then two seconds later, it's you are not getting up until you eat every bite of that sandwich with a really mean. Oof, she's, she's, un- she's unpleasant to watch because I think. Unlike most Mad Men characters, she is drawn pretty cartoonishly, I, I think. And maybe that could be the performance. I don't really know. Um, maybe well, it's part I just, of the drawing. But, but if I were to read the lines on paper, maybe it wouldn't seem that way. I, I don't really know how much of it is the delivery. But yeah, she just seems yeah like a little bit of a sadistic personality and dramatic personality uh, as Henry's mother, where... I mean, I I had a grandma who was not like the loving grandma. You know what I mean? It wasn't a granny. She thought her job was to develop us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's not really it's not really part of the part of the way you you think about it. So I I get the idea of like you know I'm not going to treat you the way your mother treats you or that kind of thing. I understand that sentiment, or I'm familiar with it. I think Pauline's a little bit like that. Like, like, as long as I'm here, you're going to, you know, this is my my way. Oh, I definitely think she thinks she's helping because she really does see that she, I mean, she flat out sees that Sally has a terrible mother who is <laughs> bad right. at being a mother, bad Doesn't for, yeah. Da, yeah. So she really, in some ways, thinks she's helping for sure. Like, that is definitely part of what she's up to. And I just, Sally is, I mean, Sally is a straight shooter as Megan is, and she's, a little kid going, how old are you? Listen, I'm a good person. Like, that's a lot <laughs> for a woman it like is. Pauline. So it I is. wonder if if she... <sighs> yes, Pauline felt cartoonish to me, but I also thought that Pauline probably keeps it together a little more. But with Sally, she just lets it all fly. But she's also like kind of into this true crime porn <laughs> aspect to it. You know, like true crime wasn't a wasn't a a thing back then, uh, or at least at least as a saying. Maybe it was. What were those mag? They were those sort of sort of comic books, sort of magazines filled with true crime stuff, and they had names and pointers. Yes. And and true crime could have been a name of one of them. That that could be where we pulled that, it that fr- forward now, from. Now it means a Netflix docu series, but but or a po- podcast. Or, it means a podcast. or a podcast too. Um, and, and it's a genre, but but back then it was what you read in the post, and it was these crazy things that kept happening. And, and New York had a lot of them through the fifties and sixties um, to, to read about. But she really is getting off on it, right? The the the, talk, the phone call with the friend and the knife. She keeps a fucking knife on the sofa with her. I mean, that's a dramatic. A <laughs> that's a dramatic person. This is a this is not someone. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, it very cartoonish. Uh, very. Um, the way you would just what we call now like just pornography just really kind of getting off on on the the salaciousness i mean we call pornography pornography no I know there's food porn there's crime porn there's all these things that people you know kind of obsess over because of yeah. how lascivious or salacious it is 
you've got Sally who is for all intents and purposes from her view abandoned by her mother left with you know a horrible babysitter i mean the calling calling don yeah. who couldn't do a thing about it wouldn't have anyway wouldn't have if he was well but certainly you know was incapable of of rescuing her we know bobby's at camp mhm and i don't know where the baby is baby's there she's got the baby uh, uh, betty comes home and the first thing she does is pick up pick up jean yeah I checked out on that. (laughs) But, you know, Sally is not a happy camper and is hearing about these murders, you know, has gotten little dribs and drabs of these murders and wants to know more and keeps trying to find out more. And and there keep being these little battles. Google it, Sally. I love when um, Sally says, I'll take out the trash, (laughs) you know, take out the trash. Tell me about the murder. And Pauline (laughs) says... I will not bargain with you. And I think sequentially that is maybe after, maybe before, but very close to Roger and Peggy, which we will get to. Um, The bargaining definitely, I was like, ding, ding, ding. But so eventually what she does is she, she takes the newspaper out of the trash and she's under her bed with the flashlight. Again, that's very spooky. That's very campfire ghost story and scares the piss out of herself. Right. Which leads her to come back in to yeah. Pauline, and, and Pauline gives her a second all. I mean, it was a weird, lovely, crazy thing, because it was, despite how unhappy she is, she really does know you go to the adult in charge for, for some comfort. She didn't need anything. She just yeah. was scared. So Pauline was the better choice with her drugs and her machete. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, again, it, it just, it, it went on too long. Um we don't need this much screen time of Sally and Pauline. And yeah, I mean, it, it kind of belonged where it belonged. Oh, fine. <laughs> it didn't leave me with anything because, because we know that Pauline's not going to be a consequential character. You know, we know that, um, and I don't even mean with hindsight. I mean, like, you just know we're not going to, Mad Men is not going to be about Betty's new husband's mother. Like, that's just, that's just too much. So, so it all felt filler to me. Um, it did add to the motif and, and this one episode that's focused on, on this, this foreboding. So I'll, I'll give it to you, but I think it's, I think it's over the line. I do think it is another example. Of, you know, for what you're saying, the real world intruding and for what I'm saying as the as the motif is the juxtapositions, you know, it's this sort of this old haunted type house, right? It's the it's the it's the Adams family kind of mansion and it's spooky and it's scary. But, you know, it's also scary having to spend a few days alone with this woman who doesn't like you, who's not nice. You know, it's like what's horror to to a little kid? is a fucking tuna sandwich that will never go away. For real. You know, I just, again, it's like all these things mushed together. Yeah. It's interesting. I have to tell you, young man, you really know women. I've never heard that before. It really gets inside their heads. Well, to tell you the truth, they confuse me. I mean, I keep thinking about Cinderella. We were going to come in here and talk about Cinderella, but it's too dark. It, it comes out of nowhere, but... You know, we see earlier in the in the episode the planning for this. We see that Rizzo and Ginsburg kind of have a grip. They've got a good grip on on what the cust what the client's looking for, on what they're going to pitch. Don says, "Weren't we going to go with something else?" They said, "No, you rejected it." Like they're 
they're they're on the ball, right? They they seem pretty competent with this. And we see the tail end of the pitch at the at the clients, and it goes great. Ginsburg, it's a rookie, it's a rookie mistake. And we've all been there to some degree, I'm sure. I know I have, where you don't take yes for an answer. The the client approves it, they buy in, they sign off, whatever they need to do. Ginsburg like launches into this alternative Cinderella idea. Yeah, good thing we didn't go with this terrible idea that he <laughs> right? pitch that he pitches as a horror movie. And because Ginsburg is so good at what he does. I mean, that's how I read it. He's just he can't he can't tell a story badly. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> you know? vivid and engaging. That's right. He, he truly is. And he does it so well that they're like, "Oh, why, why don't we go with that?" <laughs> Which on the face of it sounds like a plus on top of a plus. But in reality, you've got a team that worked on an idea, they've set it up, they're ready to execute it, and you come in and switch gears and you kind of snatch victory from the draw, uh, defeat from the draws of victory. And um, Don lets him have it in the bar afterwards. And he doesn't get it. And he doesn't get it. I mean, his- What a his, decent guy. That's what he says. <laughs> his view of reality is definitely a little skewed. Well, that's yeah. That that's I think the underlying message here, and I I do love the the rejoinder with uh, with Kenny. <laughs> he's like, yeah. He's like, you know, you almost got fired just now. I don't think so. He's like, I'm positive. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny is not divorced from reality. <laughs> he's no. very much in it. I want to go back to the first scene in the break room in the creative room, whatever that's called. When Joyce first comes in with the photographs, high Pegasus, you know, all of that. Love that. In that scene, Ginsburg is uh, more connected to reality than anybody else, mm -hmm. right? We shouldn't be doing this. This is horrible. I'm not going to look at that. Why are you all laughing? It's a moral, it's a morality, uh, it's a moral center that we're seeing. Now, their reaction was also to fully plausible. It wasn't great, but it's, you know, you laugh when you're uncomfortable, but also you're kind of intrigued and they've never seen anything like this. Whatever. That was all Who fine. Who wouldn't look? These are, these are the pictures they won't publish, right? right. Most people are going to give in to their sense of macabre. The other thing I wanted to call out about that scene, though, once again, it's the most horrific thing that's come in. It's these photographs. I mean, we're not seeing them, but... This is the truest of the horror that everybody's right. talking about in, face. in there. This is a bright, white, colorful room. Go back and look at the scene. Look at the group shot. I mean, Ginsburg's outfit. It is color, 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 right, color, color. It right. is bright and gorgeous, and you've never seen anything like it. Now, I just happened to come across, I think it was one of, was one of the accounts we follow, Mad Men Clips, had, had the scene way back early season two, uh, season two opener for those who think young, uh, where they're all gathered around the Xerox machine. Mm. Joan is wearing red. It's Valentine's Day. Joan is wearing a red dress. Everybody else is a gray, is a brown. <laughs> the carpet is brown. The Xerox, it is... It is a it it is a practically a black and white movie with a red dress, so it's really so so that that design that's just part of the art design you know the uh, art direction of the episode of the show again highlights the juxtaposition between what what we're actually doing and <laughs> and how it is being presented not at all like horror but it also was a reminder of what 1966 looks like. In in the office <laughs> yeah. compared to 19 
62. So it was wonderful. It was great. Beautiful. You're right. It was very colorful in that in that lounge. So you mentioned P- Peggy and Roger. Can we? So, Can we so, get into it? <laughs> listen, it, listen. It's a great scene, but let's not forget. It's really tied to the Roger and Pete drama. No, totally. You know? That was what I wanted to make sure we highlighted sure. because that came and went so quickly. That's right. It, they don't spend any time on it, but there's this strike. Pete says, "I've got you know, I've got them ready to go." Mohawk's got this deal with the union, and they can get they can they basically they can fly, and no one else can. So it's a great time to be advertising. So with that, I guess they were prepped for this, but Roger Roger literally does not know how to do his job and does not do it. Like what? <laughs> what? I mean again, it's easy to skip over because you get right to Roger and Peggy and that is just so entertaining and so much fun and yay Peggy. But fucking Roger, what is this? <laughs> Who late lounging is great. Lounging on the chair. No, totally ready by Monday. What? Are you, right there right, with you, buddy. Right. It's 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 so it's so explicit as to be not plausible, <laughs> frankly. No, yeah, it is know. cartoonish. That is true. It does get Roger into Peggy's office. Is Ginsburg here? No, he's left. It's Friday. They just had the pitch with Butler Shoe. So it's a legitimate reason why he'd have to negotiate with Peggy. And that <laughs> that's what he does. And I just, you know. Ten bucks, baby. At, well, Here's ten yeah, bucks. Well, how much do you want? <laughs> I'll take it all. This is Miss Deaver's secretarial school graduate from 1959 who is now telling the boss to give her all the money in his pocket. Our little Peggy, all grown up. The second time this has happened this season. Right. It's cool. It's really great. And and it's more of what it says about her, is the confidence and understanding how leverage works. Right? Two years ago, she'd have been steamrolled into into doing way more than she ought to have. And here she's able to extract maximum value, which is awesome. fell asleep. Well, uh, it's time to go home. I will, in a bit. Come on, I don't want to walk out alone. I don't know. I think I'll just stay here. You can hop in a cab. I happen to have a lot of cash for once. Now, we're a couple of white people. We'll give our take, but we're not qualified to really get into everything, certainly that Don experienced. We can just do our best to to check it out. Well, I, look, I think I think. I mean, we cringed for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the action is is pretty straightforward, and we can certainly have a a, a surface level um, understanding of of Dawn's predicament. Right? She she's there if she's there late for any reason. She suddenly has trouble getting back to her home, which is not an intuitive thing, I think, for most Americans to understand, either about- well, For white New- Americans, well, for most white Americans to well, understand. Either about New York, as well as about the race issues that that Dawn experiences. So, yeah, it, it, it's sort of, it's, it's not an obvious thing that we ought to know, oh, of course she can't get home at night, or of course she'd be sleeping in Dawn's office out of desperation. You know, and they, and they go through all the reasons why Dawn can't go home, yep. get home. Can't take the subway, right. My bro- yeah, my brother won't let me take the subway, and um, which which was really sweet, and it just suddenly it gives you a whole a whole window into into her life, right, right, right. and and we get a little more back at Peggy's apartment. Peggy saying, you know, get your things, come with me. I mean, that was that was the right thing to do, and and it struck me as a little like, ooh, she didn't really give her a choice. 
And maybe today you would say it differently mm. to anybody. That's not not race aside. You wouldn't necessarily say, get your things. You would say, I really, really, I swear it's, you know, there would be no there would be no telling. There would still be asking. But I think that's a very period kind of way to have presented that that invitation as not an invitation, but as a come on. Come, well, I think on. also there, the, the um, there's evolutions here that are in play. One is Peggy's evolution. The second is the evolution of the firm. This is, you know, getting to almost mid-season five. In season four, when we started about a season and a half ago, the a big part of our discussion was about how flat the organization was. From top to bottom, wasn't there weren't a lot of layers. And so everybody's exposed to everyone else and the relationships have changed. Here, a year a season and a half later, and however many years or so later, the firm has gone through a lot ups and downs. They've come back from these issues. And there are people there who are part of the team who were not there at the beginning. And there is a hierarchy. And Peggy, who was there from the beginning, is now she's hardly management, but she's senior enough to where she probably sees someone who's on Don's desk as not beneath her, but but a but a subordinate that she could say something that she could talk to like that. I don't know that that would have been the case at the beginning of season four. With, with whoever was on, on someone else's desk. I didn't see it as a subordinate thing at all. I saw it as what you would say to, I mean, it's hard. There's not that many women, you know, as Peggy brings up later, there's still not that many women on her level. Mm-hmm. But let's say it was Faye last year and Faye was jammed up. Or Peggy was jammed yeah. up. Either one of them would say to each other, now those are, those are not subordinates. Those are yeah. equals. Either one of them would say, get your things. You're coming with okay. me. I didn't read it that way. Here where where it is, all the secretaries to one degree or another have a, have some a different decorum to them than the creatives do mm. and the account people do. There's a little more trepidation about I have a, you know, even, even as it's gotten looser, you know, picture Megan last season, right? There's a, there's a way you behave as a secretary. Mm. Dawn does that times a million because Dawn doesn't have any wiggle room. There's no margin of error for Dawn. We know know this. Anything but purely professional and guarded and she keeps herself safe. So I'm picturing Peggy saying this to Megan last season now. Forget the – so now we're at the subordinate thing again. And it would have been awkward for two seconds and then she and Megan would have had a grand old time. Mm. Drinking and 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 gossiping, getting to know one another, yeah. But it never wasn't awkward with Dawn. Dawn was just like not going to let her guard she down. She immediately and knew also, how precarious her situation was. Yeah, and 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 also like I, I don't white people. I don't get it. Like you guys drink a lot. Like it was very. She was just like this is a world I don't feel comfortable entering. So there was a, so much going on. Well, I think it drew the the contrasts between Peggy and Dawn as young women, first of all, because Peggy sees being on Dawn's desk as a way to elevate yourself and get to where you want to be, which ultimately for her was to be a copywriter. It didn't, pardon the expression, dawn on Peggy. (laughs) It didn't dawn on Peggy that you could be on Dawn's desk where that that's as far as your ambition is going. That doesn't mean Dawn doesn't have other aspirations. It just means that she's not, she doesn't see herself as being in the advertising business just because she's working in an ad agency. They're both outsiders, 
But Peggy thinks there are similar types of outsiders. And what the contrast that we saw was, no, Dawn's an outsider for a whole lot of reasons that Peggy Peggy isn't, even if Peggy is an outsider in her own way. But Peggy was trying to draw too many similarities, I think, where they didn't belong. Yeah, I think it was her attempt to connect, to connect with this woman who was a stranger on her couch. I don't think that Peggy necessarily thinks that all the secretaries are looking to advance a copywriter, even though Megan just did. I, I don't think I don't think she has she projects that onto people very much. I think, I think she did a little. I got a little of that. I love her description of that she keeps it vivid. I was discovered. <laughs> I loved I that. Right. She doesn't have it that she worked her that, you know, that is just a, a great kind of woman thing of not giving yourself credit. Not that she doesn't think of herself as a hard worker or having, you know, killed herself to get where she is. But first, what happened was she was discovered. She wasn't sitting there wanting to be a copywriter. She was just curious. But that's how the story comes out when she's telling it to Dawn in this case. It may or may not be how Peggy thinks of it when she's alone by herself. This is the this is the external version that she's sharing. And I'm not saying, maybe, we, I'm not saying we know or don't know what Peggy thinks to herself. All I'm saying is this is how she says it to others. Well, this is how she said it this time. I've never heard her say that before. And she's so drunk. I love, never seen her this kind of drunk. Her acting, her, her drink, you know, playing drunk is the hardest thing. And she did a perfect job of it. It was really good. All of that said, we, we get to the final moment, Peggy noticing as she's leaving Dawn to go to bed that her bag, her purse is on the coffee table. With all of Roger's money in it. Which she told Dawn she has. I have lots of cash because they took that, a cab. Yeah, as I'm saying, it wasn't. She wasn't yeah. just making up reasons to be, you know, to have these concerns. She she knows that Dawn knows what's in there. And it was just that moment of her eyes going to it and pausing and considering. And you know, everything is in slow mo when you're drunk too. Mm. Like you th- you don't think you're in slow mo, but like even a blink of an eye can actually be way more than a blink. Regardless, Dawn is also on alert to white people blinking eyes. (laughs) It was perfectly rendered, if you will, both by, by the direct, by the directing and by both of them. And you couldn't unsee it. Yeah. It was, it was involuntary. Yeah. On, on Peggy's part. Yeah. That's implicit bias. It it was, it was, it was a, right. It was a, it was a um, hardwired type of bias. You know, and I'm immediately asking myself because I'm I'm a white person who asks myself the questions and, you know, tries to get myself off of any implicit bias that I do have. Right. Like so immediately I was like, well, would she have done that with if it was a white secretary? And maybe she would have, but it would not have been awkward afterwards. Mm. <laughs> she Maybe she would have just grabbed the bag. You know, it's just it's there. You can't it can't not be there exactly. that there's this accusation because you're black. What immediately you become aware of because of race, is the implications and the consequences of how you handle it. So now, because once you know you're caught, (laughs) which Peggy knows she was caught. And she goes for the beer bottles, right? Yeah. She does the only thing she can do on a neutral level. Now, if I move my bag, it makes it worse. If I leave my bag there, am I making it worse? Like, there's a, I'm now, I'm now in a corner. I've cornered myself because of this this involuntary reaction that I've shown uh, or this involuntary action that I've shown. She, she does the best that she can with it, but I think it's, 
it's there to show that for all of Peggy's hospitality and all of Peggy's good nature, uh, and I think she genuinely does want to get to know Dawn a little bit, that there's still something there that separates them and separates us all to some degree when these kinds of things happen. And it's it doesn't make Peggy a bad person, but it does shine a light on aspects that we we are sometimes helpless to identify before they pop up. So that was all about Peggy and how this was for Peggy when it was a million times worse for Don. (laughs) And that is nothing wrong with that, Dan. That's just you're a white guy. I might have led with it, too. You know, this is this is the problem. This is the disparity is we, you know, I know I'm being super woke here. I'm not I'm not above the exact same reactions, the exact same feelings. I'm a white person. There's no erasing it. There's no deleting any thoughts of difference. I can't draw from personal experience to talk about how Dawn felt. I don't have that. No, but we were watching a TV show. You also don't know what it's like to be a woman copywriter. So, you know, and and, and Peggy's our character. I'm not, you know, there's also that. We've spent five seasons with her. Just a reminder that it was a million times worse for Dawn. And Dawn just sucks it up and shuts it up. And that's part of why we're not talking about it. Because we didn't watch much, you know, we just... She barely, you couldn't see shit on her face. It was just all there, but nothing moved because she keeps herself perfectly composed and guarded at all times because she has to because of shit like this. And she did the graceful thing at the end, which was to leave a polite note and get the hell out of there. <laughs> well, the passive aggressive pace. P- putting, p- putting it on the, on the pocketbook for sure. Leaving it right there on the yeah, bag. Yeah. But it's perfect. It's perfect. Yeah. But it kind of is perfect. Like you, you. Dawn, we we don't know very much about personally. She's a sweet, intelligent, we just met her, yeah. young woman. So we're we're just getting to know her. But the note is what you do. It's what you do if somebody gives you their couch when you have no place to sleep for whatever reason. That that's what you do. Let's take a break. Let's break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about Joan and Greg. We need to. I think we should. All righty. We'll see you on the other side. Fuck this guy. <sighs> you know. Okay, so the presumption was Greg's coming home. He's not like on – I guess he's on leave because he was intended to go back. What did she say? 40 days. 40 days. And we have Joan's mom there who's acting like it's World War II. <laughs> like, you don't know what he's seen. He needs – like, I. it was – It was too much to take, even just watching. Honestly, this woman is like so stuck in whatever her frame of reference is. It's like, honey, read the papers. This is he's not coming back from France. okay? and her her drama level matched matched his for sure. I did think she I did think even as overdramatic as it was, she had some insights. I thought he's not used to listening to a woman was not a bad insight. Now, grant you. He's never gotten used to listening <laughs> right. to a woman, and but Gail doesn't you, you know. You've been waiting a long time for that, yeah. <laughs> but I did think the thing about he's going to be finding a little hole in his life and sticking his elbow through and finding his way in. I thought, again, as World War II-y as it was, as over dramatic as it was, if Greg was a even a decent normal person. It's weird to be away for a long time and then to come home and your wife is now a Her mother and you have a baby. In the right and all place. That. I don't I don't question that at all. But there's a there's a such thing as like over managing with your help and over you know, trying to be so precise oh, with awful. everything. It's I mean- like it's like 
it, we're going to deal with, you know, we got to roll with whatever's going to happen. Like you're, you're talking like, like this is clearly what your experience with your husband was and whatever kind of training they gave to the wives while, while the men were coming home. Like, okay, that's you. That's not, that's, this is this. And that's, let's, <laughs> let's create a barrier here. Yeah. It was, it was too much. She's like, listen, one of Joan's, you know, uh, to just jump ahead a second, one of Joan's last straws was Gail saying it'll only be, be another year. I'll <laughs> stay. <right. laughs> yeah. Joe, that definitely, that was, that was. I had had it was like, before that. Now oh I my. really had it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should have a rule that you have to wear your uniform all the time when you're home. Gail, is there a chance you could pick up more beer? Of course. I wanted to get the afternoon paper anyway. Before he comes home, we first encounter Joan. You know, we see her from inside the oven in the black night, you know, uh, undergarment and like a uh, slip. They're called slips. Gail is getting ready to go out and once again, give me money. There were two times in Greg's presence when she offers to go out. Now, at one point, Greg says, I'll give you money or get the money or here's the money. I can't remember. But. Two times in Greg's presence, she offers to go get the film for the brownie. The brownie, for those who don't know, was a little a little camera that people could afford. She does not ask him for money. She wants that money. She expects that money. But she does not ask a man for it the way she asks Joan for it. And it happens again the next morning for beer. Same thing. She does not ask Greg. for. She says it to Greg. I'm going to go out and get you that beer. And she does not say. Yeah. Give me money. And it has never not come out of her mouth. That's true. Any other time. I just thought that was good, good For sure. Right. For sure. You know, the, the the conflict here is that it's agreed that he's coming home and then going back for 40 days. He breaks it to Joan during one of these times alone that – and by the way, she's pouring from a coffee cup. Oh, excuse me, the coffee pot. It's that white and there was that blue pattern. Co- uh, Corningware. Corningware. It was the brand. We had tons of that in my house. Oh, yeah. Also, let me tell you, I'm watching this episode at night, two nights. I watched it two nights. And each time, my mouth started watering for percolated coffee. (laughs) That shit took forever and nothing has ever tasted as good. But the Corningware, definitely. I I was like, oh, my God, that's, that's spot on. Yep. My growing up was a decade later and we still had all that stuff. So, um... The 40 days is referenced. You're going back and he immediately says, I now have to go back. Basically, they've changed the rules on me, Joan, and I need to go back. But I've agreed to do that. And so this is what we have to deal with. And he's trying to break it to her, but he absolutely does not say that he reenlisted or, or, or volunteered to go back for a year. He also never does say they've changed the rules on me. He just lets it sound right. that way. He, he never yeah. says it. Also, I love... He says, I've got something to tell you. And she assumes he's going to say, I cheated on right. you. That's absolutely what and she's And she's thinking. ready for it. But then he takes her hand and she's like, but you're not holding my hand for that news. And he's like, no, 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 no. You have this all Well, wrong. that's, again, that's her mother in her ear. <laughs> you know? She, Joan also knows men like Roger for used sure. to know advertising. No, 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 no. Exactly. But I'm saying it's a constant drumbeat of what of, of what this is. It's reinforced over and over. Um but no, it's not that. He breaks the news to her. And she's like on the edge at that point about him going back a year. Here's the thing. It's one of these things where she's angry, 
but she knows she doesn't have a right to be angry because she believes it's not his in his control. It's like being angry at somebody who dies, right? It's like you have angry feelings, but you've got to just deal with those feelings, suck it up. And other than him having volunteered to go into the army altogether, (laughs) you know, she's not directing her anger at him per se. She might indirectly be angry at him because he got us into this mess. But yeah, she, she, she accepts it as much as she can in that moment holding back, I think, still a little bit of it, or a lot of it. So what's interesting is they go to this dinner. Yep. And you see, first of all, the serviceman salute Greg, who has never felt more important in his life. And how else does he show how important he feels? He shits all over that waiter. And, and that's that's a movie and TV trope, right? If someone's going to be an asshole, they're rude to the to the waiter or the help. In any it's also because it's true. No, I, I mean, know it's, it's, I know it's that it's true. Totally but I'm saying true. if you want to show it, that's how you show it. It's it's over and over. So yeah, that's an easy an easy uh, one to grab onto. Yeah, no, Greg is all big man on campus now. You know, we don't we haven't met Greg's parents, but we see them here, and everyone's playing nice, and Greg's at the head of the table, and the mom. Just speaks up. I can't. I can't not talk about this. And she kind of spills the the news that that Greg. I, I don't know if it's reenlisting technically or or what the what the terminology is, but basically that his his extra year is voluntary. Yeah. All of a sudden, she's like, "Oh, you didn't tell Joan." And let me tell you, that was a woman who knows her fucking son. Well, that's an uncomfortable. She table. knows. <laughs> as soon as she connected the dots for herself, she was like. I'm not covering for this. This kid is has been a little shit his whole life. <laughs> exactly. This, this is like the time you didn't Joan tell me you it. got suspended or whatever. You know, like, whatever it is. This is you know. This is 100%. you don't ra- you don't have a son who takes no responsibility for anything and not notice. And that was a sharp woman. She was she was not a she was not some kind of weird caricature. She was just a person. No, but she she uh, you're right. The the, the the way this show can say a lot about people in three lines of dialogue, that what she, you're what you're spot on. I mean, she she absolutely knew, put the pieces together in five seconds. You know, because you're, uh, because otherwise her reaction would have at least had a moment of stumbling of like, oh shit, I shouldn't. How do I get out of this? Oh, right. There was look, not look even what a I did thought. To, look what I did to my son. Right. It exactly. was not even a thought of yep. trying to get out of it. <laughs> and the look on Joan's face. I mean, that's that's that broker. That absolutely broker. I don't think there's any question about it. Now, a couple things. The dress she wears when Greg first comes home that she puts on over that slip is a black dress with red roses. And while it is a dress we have not seen, it is quite reminiscent of the dress she wore to the party she threw, they threw, in my old Kentucky home. Which ended with her playing the accordion and and being so utterly humiliated, finding out you know that was when she found out that he wasn't going a good to be doctor. a surgeon, right? <laughs> yeah. At the moment when he says at the dinner, they need me because that was it. He says they need me. Yeah. Now, what's the answer to that? We fucking we need, need you, putz. He says they need me and intruding into their space is the accordion like, is the accordion. <laughs> and I love that her mother even finally says it because I, I was like, oh, my God, that was so. And then her mother even says, uh, you know, a moment later, 
her mother and there it is her mother says uh you know do you know Joni plays the accordion but but you know but it was it was genius genius the accordion by itself was the 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 punchline right yeah absolutely absolutely but then the 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 callback from from the mother was just you know a, a heap of whipped cream on top of the sunday and it was shocking you go holy shit this this is the way it played out holy crap Here's the other thing I wanted to say about all of this. I don't remember if I brought this up. And if I did, it's fine. Here it is again. I remember that my take in the, in the, contemporaneously on Greg raping Joan and how Joan dealt with it, my take on it at the time. And again, I, I might have brought this up when we covered the episode, The Mountain King, was that I don't know that Joan knew what happened to her. She knew it wasn't good. She knew it was a bad night with her fiance. But I always imagined uh, Joan in the 80s (laughs) sitting at a kitchen table with her daughter, her teenage daughter, and going, oh, like her daughter talking about date rape and her going like, Oh, that happened to me. Yeah. This or Kevin is the as an 18-year-old. Yeah. Well, I just I pictured, I pictured it with a daughter. I pictured it. That's yeah. a, that's a kind of a thing you talk about with your daughter. Your daughter would bring home to you. Right. Your 80s daughter would bring home to you. Here's what happened. Not the other right. way around. I was wrong. This was the episode that showed me that I was wrong. Joan always knew. Joan, this is how much Joan sucked it up. She didn't just suck up the experience. She actually had a framing for it that was correct, which is he raped me. Y- yes. Or, or 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 the time between the incident and 1966, she right. had processed, right. you know, uh, with, with perspective. And she was unflinching, finally. It was the moment you wanted... The it whole was absolutely time. for the viewers, I think. To- you know what you did. That's you right. know you, you are, are not, not a good, a good man. man. Right. You are not a good man, and you know what I'm talking about. Right. We we couldn't we couldn't it it would feel incomplete nar- from a narrative perspective for this relationship to end without, without that her acknowledgement covered. with clear eyes of, of what that was. And this was the way to do it. And it yeah. was perfect. No, you're right. That was it was a little fan service. Yeah, we absolutely. we needed we needed the closure. Correct. In real in real life, you may or may not have gotten that. It might have that's been right. more like what you're saying. Yeah, that's that's. Thank you. <laughs> that, that actually makes me feel better about my take on it. My original yeah, take no, on no, it. No, no, I, I think I, I think for a show that's so true to life, there are things I think that are that are engineered might be a heavy handed term, but that are certainly manufactured for for fans or for the narrative and, and that's as it should be, frankly. To tell a good story. Totally. Yeah. So yeah, we, we get that satisfaction. We get that, you know, if I walk out of here, I'm leaving. Well, there you go. There's the door. And once again, here it is. Who's the horror inside this this household? <laughs> and none of this was set up like a horror movie. None of this had no. the vibe. But who's the monster in that house? And we got to watch and we got to watch him leave. So that was Further satisfying because our heart's always with Joan. Yeah, for sure. And God, you know, she's not keeping her mother around. You know, Joan's going to work it out. She's going to bring in a girl and she's going to make it work. And that's it. This is Joan being as strong as we've 
always known Joan is. Yeah. And we and sh- and she's the one who's doubted it. And she's the one. I mean, I I feel like I'm talking like a self help book, but it's so true. Well, she realizes that a year's not going to change anything. Yeah, and that she can fucking handle it, and it's going to be awful. She's never going to sleep. She's going to want to just rip her hair out, and she's going to get through it, and she's going to raise her son, who isn't his anyway. There's that. No, it's it's the coming home and getting through the 40 days is her last – she may not have thought of it in these terms, but it's the last attempt to have the marriage and the husband and the family and the relationship that she thought she was getting. It's that one one last swing at the pitch. With the year, she realizes nothing, nothing's going to change after this year. Not nothing. Yeah. That I can skip ahead and not and know exactly how it's going to turn out. So what what am I doing? Wasting my time. Get the fuck out. And how many times has that carrot moved? Yeah. As soon as we get through this, we're going to be okay. We're going to get the house. We're going to this. We're going to that. Forty more days. I'm going to be home. There, you know. Any again? And in 1966, it wasn't like Vietnam was going away in a year. <laughs> Every everybody knew, you know, this was not something that that was was had had a horizon, you know, in sight. So no, she she knew that that this was it, and all this stuff like they need me and all this other stuff was, you know, he he doesn't get it. He's never going to get it. She totally nailed it. They make you feel like a man. I'm tired of it. Good, let them do it. That's fine. Yeah, it's their job, not mine. And then the episode ends with that incredible shot. Uh, the overhead shot of the bed with the baby between her and her mother. They are all laying perfectly still. And I will just say it like dead bodies. They they look rather lifeless, which, again, just connects with what's been the backdrop of this whole episode. But in fact, she may be a little numb and in shock. But that woman, she's getting her shit together. And ready. that started tonight. No question. Yeah. Mad Men does those bird's eye views. Of the beds shots really well. There's that Peggy one in season two. There's a few others that are out there. It's it's a sort of a a signature. Okay, so we're going to take another break and we're going to come back with quotes. (laughs) When Sally is on the phone with Don, she's complaining about Pauline. She doesn't believe me that mom lets me watch as much TV as I want. And Don's like, wait, (laughs) your mom, your mom lets you do that. And she goes, I'm on vacation. (laughs) I'm on vacation was the greatest line from from Sally Draper. (laughs) That's a 12 year old justifying, (laughs) you know, I can, I can eat all I want. I can stay up as late as I want. I can watch as much TV as I want. I'm on vacation. All right, Dan. It's true. What is your quote? Mine is Peggy talking to Roger. The lie is extra. (laughs) He's like, I can make you just do this work anyway. I don't have to pay you. She's like, yeah, you're right. But the lie is extra. Underneath all of that is Peggy when we talk about someone knowing their power. (laughs) It's like, yeah, you can make me work because I'm your employee. You're a partner. I'm not a partner. So you're absolutely right that I cannot, you know, I, I have no business negotiating for the work. But you're asking me to compromise myself uh, and keep a lie for you. I don't have to do that by any means. You have absolutely no right to ask me that. That's what you're paying for. And I just love Peggy in the moment, which we don't all think this clearly in the moment all the time. In the moment, Peggy's able to identify that as being what what the value is to Roger. 
Roger can can walk into any office and tell someone to do something, but he cannot ask people to lie. And so <laughs> she she immediately knows that's his soft spot. And it's I great. love the whole thing. The whole thing. He, I can fire you. Well, <laughs> you know, sure. What are you gonna? What are you, <laughs> you going find someone morning? tonight? You know, yeah. it's great. It's just all great. It's so good. All right. So that was a surprisingly interesting uh, episode there. It Mystery was. Date. It was. It was good. Um, Listen, it's episode four of the season. We are going up the roller coaster. There is a even though that had its own vibe, there is a a vibe in these early episodes of scene setting and they're yes. not they start to feel different. I think starting uh, next week, signal 30. It connects. Yeah, things 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 do connect. Um but yeah, it's more about it but it's more about this whole you know, the the way Jennifer said in in our conversation it's, you know, when we started this series, it was still the 50s. Yeah. And that doesn't like go away right away. It's still the 50s for a little while. And by the time you get to mid 66, eh, it's harder to say it's the 50s. It's something else. And, and as we all know, just, just from a societal standpoint, things pick up speed. So yeah, these things are changing rapidly. We're in July of 66 at this point. That is. That's very deep in. No, Matt always said Mad, Mad Men is about many things. One of the things that Mad Men is about is how the 60s became the 60s we think of when we think of the 60s. Truly. And, yeah, you know, we're going to see it. It started out looking like a black and white movie with one red dress. It really did. Yeah, you know? for sure. For sure. All right, guys. So that's again, it. next week, Signal 30. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. Yeah. Okie doke. All right. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time. Bye, guys. If you would like to support the show, as many of our listeners do, go to patreon.com slash theycoinedpod. You get many bonus episodes and other treats. Another way to support us is to leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Email us at questions at theycoinedpod.com or on Twitter and Instagram at TCIMadmenPod. They Coined It is produced and edited by Roberta Lip. Our logo and merch graphics are by Albert Stern of Stickrest Arts. Our theme is from Adam Tilford. Thanks again for listening. I'm Dan Jasper. See you next time.